Hello and welcome to Intelligence Talks. I'm your host, Anna Ward, Senior Analyst, and I'm joined today by Andrew Shirley. He's editor of The Wealth Report and Knight Frank's Luxury Investment Index. He will be hosting this week's special episode with His Royal Highness Prince Michael of Kent and Jamie Knight, the Managing Director of Bonhams UK. They'll be talking about one of the top performers in Knight Frank's Luxury Investment Index, Classic Cars. So Andrew, can you put this into context a bit? How come cars are featuring on the podcast and what did you learn from speaking to His Royal Highness and Jamie Knight? Thank you very much, Anna. Well, I've been compiling the Luxury Investment Index for about the past seven years or so, and it's always been fascinating to look at how the different asset classes in it, which include handbags and rare whiskey, have performed over that period. But I've always had a bit of a soft spot for classic cars, and until we introduced whiskey into the index, they were the top performer. So it was absolutely fascinating to be able to have this opportunity to talk to Jamie Knight and His Royal Highness Prince Michael of Kent about classic cars. They're both absolutely passionate about the subject, having had long careers involving classic cars. And the discussion was really varied. We talked about things like the classic car market and looking further ahead, how will climate change and the focus on the environment actually influence classic car collecting? Will it be something that people will do in the future? But to get things started, I got right down to basics and asked Jamie and His Royal Highness, what were their earliest memories of collecting classic cars and what really got them into this fascinating sector? I think I first got interested in cars when I was given a pedal Jeep for my seventh birthday, which was an American Jeep. It had a huge white star on the bonnet. And it was very heavy, which meant you had to pedal like fury to get it to move. That was the start of my interest. Whenever people came to lunch, we had a short drive at home. And other people went off to do things or play tennis or whatever it might be. And I made an absolute menace of myself by asking these miserable guests if I could drive their car up and down the drive, which they miraculously agreed to let me do. And I covered an enormous mileage like that. Before the age of 12, I think I'd driven about 70 different cars. So I had vast experience, actually, and I could cope with all sorts of funny things like automatic gearboxes. The drive was gravelly, so I experimented what happened if you put the gear lever into park while you were going along, which is not a thing I recommend. But if you do it at about a quarter of walking pace, on gravel. The car stops, it doesn't damage anything, and you learn that it does stop the car most effectively. And unless you've actually tried it yourself, it's not the sort of thing you pick up in everyday life. Thank you very much, sir. Now, coming over to Jamie Knight of Bonhams. Can you beat that, Jamie? What what are your first memories of cars and what got you into them? Well, I, I think it was more of a scoreboard interest. My family background was not immersed in old cars. My father was a, an antiques dealer from Brighton. And of course, you can imagine what sort of reputation they had. He had a lovely dealer friend called Tony Margiotta. You can guess that he was of Italian descent. And he used to come along to the house and he'd pull up in this car. And I looked at the car and I thought to myself, that is amazing. That is the most beautiful car I think I've ever seen. Why can't dad have one of those? Dad at the time had a a bronze metallic Ford Granada 2.8 gear. And it was only really later in life that, of course, what I was looking at was Tony Margiotta's 
little Ferrari 246 GT Dino in bright red, Rosso Corsa. And I think that kind of got me sort of stimulated into having more than a passing interest in old cars. Well, that's certainly a pretty great classic to inspire interest. I can remember going in one of my father's friend's DB5s, which was a um, fantastic experience for a young man. But those were some of your sort of experiences that first got you into classic cars. So your Royal Highness, since then, what have been your most memorable experiences of classic cars, whether that's a particular car or a place that you were driving them or, or some kind of event? Yes, I have, certainly. First of all, I was lucky enough myself to have some wonderful cars. And funnily enough, one of them was a DB5 drophead in 1967, which was the most beautiful car. I don't think there have been many cars to rival it in terms of interest or build or anything. And I had that, and I had an E-Type, and I had a Dino Ferrari 246, which is a beautiful car. So I've been very lucky to have those cars. As far as experiences on the road have been, I think probably the most memorable must be the Mille Miglia which I've done, I think, oh, eight times or something. And I've done it twice in a DBR2 Aston Martin racing car of 1957. The most exciting thing about it is that they only two made two of them, and I drove one one year and one the next. Very, very quick, beautifully prepared. And the car was like new to drive, and it was still like new when we finished with it, I may say, too. Except that at one moment, the brakes failed coming into Rome, I seem to remember. And so my co-driver and I, who was Victor Gauntlet, who used to be chairman of Aston Martin, decided that we'd go a bit easy because we didn't have any rear-wheel brakes. Well, that didn't last very long. After about half an hour, the thing stopped so well that we didn't really remember about the absence of brakes. And it was an amazing car and a very, very good drive. And apart from that... I had a lovely time last year. I was invited to go to Italy again. We drove from Milan to Turin in a series of Ferrari 166, which was a very, very important car for the company because it put Ferrari on the map in 1949 and was the first Ferrari which really hit the public imagination and made a tremendous name for itself. I actually didn't drive one of those on this run, I drove a modern car, which was an Alfa, a beautiful Alfa Romeo, but it had a secret under its bonnet. It had a Ferrari engine, and it was immensely quick. And a V12 Ferrari engine. That was a great excitement. So I've been very lucky to have been able to drive some very special motor cars. I mean, that certainly sounds like some amazing experiences, so I'm very jealous of that. But coming over to you now, Jamie, as an auctioneer at Bonhams with a long, long career with amazing automobiles, you must also have driven some really nice cars. Is there anything that sticks out in your, your mind as a very special memory from your time? Well, that, that's right, Andrew. And I think really my sort of role or job, if you like, I've had both the opportunity to handle cars on behalf of our clients, our sellers, but also play with them too. And I suppose from a playing perspective, I was lucky enough to be able to race a number of historic cars in races, starting off with a Cooper Bristol, little Formula 2, early 50s, two-litre single-seater and then sort of graduating up into a Lotus 15 and a Jaguar D-Type. 
And the Lotus 15, as the recognition that they have for their road holding, was absolutely magnificent. The D-Type was just so much power to a complete absence of grip. It was amazing just how the really proficient drivers could race a Jaguar D-Type. And I was I was lucky enough to be taken out to do some reconnaissance laps at Goodwood with John Harper, who is still eh, still pretty much active in the historic racing game. But I think it was a complete education come realisation that the way he drove a Jaguar D-Type, the speed that he carried into the corners, a speed that I must confess, I didn't think we'd see the exit of the corner. We were going in so fast, but the way that he would just balance the car and then drift it around the corners It was a real sobering experience because by the time I got back to the pits, it told me really in plain terms that you're never going to be able to drive a car like he can drive a car. So don't kill yourself trying. So that was probably one of the best lessons that I could get. But I guess you also have to apply those skills as an auctioneer, knowing that measuring the rhythm of the room, getting your timing right... Is there a particular sale and a particular car that really stands out to you during your long auctioneering career? Well, yeah, there's any number and I'll try and pick a few highlights. Early on in my career, I first joined the auction business in 1982 as a furniture porter and then graduated to the motoring department. Wasn't necessarily looking for it, but they said this is a transition from being a porter into a specialist, even though I knew nothing at the time. And I joined the motoring department in 84. Just a few years later, we were fortunate enough to be commissioned to offer on behalf of the owner a Bugatti Type 41 Royale, which is one of a handful of these magnificent straight eight litre Bugattis of the period, literally just built for royalty, huge, huge cars. It was surplus to his collection policy. And he said to Robert Brooks, who was my mentor at the time, he said, you've got three months to get this car consigned and sold. And Robert said, OK, guys, we need somewhere equally prestigious to sell such a magnificent car. We're only going to have 10 cars in the auction. What do you think? Anyway, long story short, we ended up renting the Royal Albert Hall for 24 hours. And we had a company called Unusual Rigging who basically had worked out how to get the car in over the chairs, over the stalls, into the central oval pit. And because it took so long to build the ramp, they harnessed it and flew it into the ceiling after we'd got the cars in. But we offered up the Royale to the entrance to the Royal Albert Hall and it was evident that it wouldn't go through the entrance And we took the doors off the Royal Albert Hall and offered the car up again. It wouldn't go through. Anyway, the night watchman who was looking at us with a jaundiced eye, we told Robert by this stage to go home because he was completely flipping his lid saying, this is a disaster. (laughs) And we basically took out the architrave of this doorway at the Royal Albert Hall and managed to just get this Royale into the Royal Albert Hall. And then we offered it and it made a world record price for a car at auction. This was 1987 and the heady price of £5.5 million was the new world auction record. Thanks very much, um, Jamie. Now, we've already mentioned some amazing cars, DB5s, Dinos, Bugattis, but Your Royal Highness, is there a car that you would still really like to own or drive that you haven't had the chance to um, get behind the wheel of? 
that I haven't had the chance. Oh, uh, yes, a huge number. First of all, I must say to Mr. Knight, I'm very jealous that he's been such an accomplished racing driver. I never did race on the track. My meagre contribution to competition was on rallies. And I started in a very modest way in 1970, driving a horrible car called an Austin Maxi on the London to Mexico rally, the World Cup rally. There were five cars like that. They all got there except ours. We had a, an unfortunate incident. I was not driving. The car managed to hit the side of the verge as we went round a very loose corner in Brazil. And it had the effect of snapping the wheel off. The top wishbone snapped off and the wheel was lying flat on the floor. And it happened right at the beginning of a four-hour special stage. And there wasn't time to get the rally crew, the, the service crew, who at that stage, of course, typically were at the other end waiting for us. They didn't have time to come back. We couldn't fix it. So we were out of the rally, which was very sad. But the rallying was a huge, huge fun. Most of it otherwise was done here in England. Well, I imagine now if you had a perfect Austin Maxi, it might be worth a little bit, Jamie, because there's not many of those around anymore. But what would your no. dream car be? Well, certainly with a Maxi, I, we've offered one of those London-Mexico Maxis, and I, I think they were nicknamed the Land Crab or something, and they carried their two spare wheels on the roof, I think. They are an acquired taste, it has to be said. But my ideal car, well, I've toyed between two cars, but they're very, very similar. They're the same make and near enough the same model. And it has to be a pre-war Alfa Romeo, has to be from the 1930s. And it's the HC2300 or the HC2600 Monza. But I think if I was to plump for one and one only, it would be the 1933 Alfa Romeo HC2300 Corto Spider by Carrozzeria Touring. And there's one in particular that I would like to own. And it's, it's kind of known as the Romaldi car. And some of the world's finest connoisseur collectors have owned the Romaldi car. But it was named after this guy who owned the car in the 1960s, 70s, 80s called Romaldi. And of all things, he was a Wandsworth, as in South London, based ice cream merchant. And he had this car and it was the most beautiful car that I had ever seen and, and maintained to this day. And it's a quarto means short. So it's the short chassis alpha and the touring body style. It had twin mounted spare wheels on the back of the car and on the top of those mounted spare wheels is a shroud with a fin on it. And it looks like the radius of an umbrella opened up, a quarter radius of an umbrella shrouding over the top of those two spare wheels with this lovely little sort of shark fin on top of the shroud and a bonnet that goes on forever, tiny little cockpit, beautiful rear end as well. And it really was the type of car that you could drive to the race, take off the wings if you wish, go racing, win and then drive home. And the supercharged straight eight 2.3 litre engine to me, is one of the best engines out there. Visually, it looks like a work of art as well. 
and with that Italian touring styling, there's nothing else on the planet that I'd want more. Though I asked Jamie, how much would that car cost if you wanted to purchase it? Yeah, today I don't think there would be much change out of 25, 30 million pounds. Right. Okay. Well, that's quite a lot of money. And that brings me neatly on to my next set of questions. I mean, we've shared some amazing stories already about classic cars, about driving experiences and all of that sort of thing. But of course, now classic cars are viewed as something else. They're actually viewed as an asset class that people invest in. For example, in the Knight Frank Luxury Investment Index, classic cars have increased by about 200% over the past 10 years. So, Jamie, why do you think that is? Why have classic cars now garnered this status as an investment rather than just something wonderful to own? It's one of these situations where ultimately I think one has to scroll back to the very basic economic equation, supply and demand. And the motor car, the historic collector's motor car growth since the year 2000 showed really very strong growth up to 2008. Between 2008 and 2010, we all remember that, the world financial crisis, the collector's motor car market kind of plateaued. The following four years saw double the growth that the first eight years of the millennium had shown. So it grew twice as much in half the time. And having been in the world of old cars since the 1980s, who lived through the rather nasty time of incredible growth and incredible crash of the late 80s, early 90s, I didn't much like the idea of that happening again. And with the growth going on so strong, I was hoping that it would let off some steam, literally like a pressure cooker, because a pressure cooker has a release valve. Without a release valve, something catastrophic can happen. It's a bit like that with the market. And I was pleased to see that the market had let off a bit of steam since about 2015. And it's now nice and stable. But certainly, we get any number of types of people that want to own cars. And yes, we do see speculators and investors coming into the market. I'm pleased to say that the vast majority do have an element of an interest in these cars. Yes, they're looking at them to make a turn. There isn't anyone out there really who is quite happy with the idea of buying a classic car and accepting that it's going to be worth 25% less the following year. No one likes that, even if you're the most committed hobbyist. And it's true to say that collectors' motor cars have never let you down over the long term. Yes, there's a right time and a wrong time to buy or sell an old car, but they've never let you down over the long term. It really was a case of a great influx of people saying, this seems like a good thing to do. And you can sometimes track it to what happens with property prices when the property market seems to overheat. A lot of people that play in the property game tend to look towards cars and and put some money into those. And of course, that then tilts the supply and demand equation into it going from a buyer's market into a seller's market and that pushes the price up but it's now settled Andrew I'm, I'm pleased to say because there isn't that heady growth in the collector's car market we're not seeing the speculators and investors playing to any great degree we're now firmly in the realms of the committed enthusiast in the market at the moment. Thank you very much, Jamie. Now, coming back to you, sir, I know that you 
like cars because you're passionate about them. I mean, in a way, is it quite sad that there are people out there who would just literally buy an amazing car, stick it in a garage for 10 years and then hope to make some money on it and never even enjoy driving? Yes, but this is life. I think that the value of some of these cars now is such that you couldn't really dare take the thing on the road or insure it. So what you do, you keep it in a garage. And if you're a collector of art and you want pictures or you like clocks or whatever it is, that's fine. And it's also a great deal easier for you to house these things. The moment you have a car, you have to consider the insurance, of course, but you also have to think about where to put it. And there's a huge amount of money to be made now by people who, who run storage facilities. I can think of several that I've seen myself and a lot of people who do have collections who store them. And in the case of a friend of mine, he's got cars dotted all over the world in storage, which I think he takes out every now and then. But sadly, the majority of that time is spent accruing in value, but sitting unloved and unseen in some storage facility. I was in Russia not very long ago, and I met a, a man there who had an enormous warehouse with a collection of, I think, 60 motor cars which, with great respect, were predominantly Russian, and that perhaps not of international importance, but they meant a lot to him, but that's what he had to do. He also had a collection of military aircraft sitting in the forecourt outside, and that must have numbered another 60, but it was, so there's quite a lot of things to collect, and all in beautiful condition. But vehicles are very strange, and it's extraordinary what fires people up, I think, of course, we get very carried away with the sort of cars you've been talking about. But equally, a lot of cars mean a lot to various people. I have a very great affection for the Centurion tank, which I used to drive when I was in the army. I used to instruct on this tank, and I got a school standard for describing the Centurion epicyclic gearbox, which I can promise you I'm not going to try to emulate now at this moment, because it takes a bit of time. But different things mean different things to different people. And there's always fun and always something to be learned. Absolutely. Thank you very much. There's, there's so many interesting angles to classic cars. But coming back to you, Jamie, you, you mentioned that no one really likes to see the value of the cars in their collection come down. I mean, if you would, were advising somebody now who loved classic cars, but wanted to see the value of the things that he or she were buying go up a little bit. I mean, what are the kind of cars now that you should be looking at if you want to start a um, collection of investment potential on your mind? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and it's a question I'm often asked, which is, well, what car should I buy? And you know what? The answer is, it's not for me to tell you what car you should buy, as His Royal Highness said. It's what does it for you? The important thing is, and we, we sort of nickname it the Holy Trinity in the department, the Holy Trinity, focus on condition, originality, and provenance. So whether it's an Austin Healey or a Ferrari, buy as close to, for want of a better phrase, best in class as you can. Just talking a little bit about auction markets, Jamie, one of the impacts of COVID-19 has been that there haven't been so many of these live auctions happen. I mean, just looking at the records, usually by this time, you'd have probably had at least 10 or so cars sold for over 5 million US dollars at auction. And I think I'm right in saying that there hasn't been one car sold for 
over 5 million US dollars at auction this year. Do you think COVID-19 is going to have a long-term impact on the auction market or will it all come back again? It will come back again. And actually, what we've seen is the market's been incredibly resilient, actually. And the prices that we and indeed our fellow competitors, the industry out there, the prices that are achieved very much in line with pre-pandemic prices. So there hasn't been any, shall we say, spooking of the market. We adapt. If you ask people to change organically, then it's a slower process. When circumstances are placed upon you, then it's amazing how quickly people can adapt. I mean, it feels a little bit like we're at the cusp in the history of automotive mobiles. The government in the UK has said that by 2035, there's not going to be any new petrol or diesel cars that will be sold. A lot of younger people these days don't even have cars. They're very much more worried about the environment. And of course, we all know about climate change. I mean, Your Royal Highness, do you think this poses an existential threat for the classic cars? Will there come a time when you know, we just can't drive these sorts of cars anymore? People won't even want to own them or even be able to buy petrol for them, I guess. Yes, indeed. Well, if you think back to when a few years ago there was a huge crisis with fuel and there have been other crises too in the way cars have been developed and people thought, what can we do? And then there were other external forces that had to do with the kind of car you drove and the law came into it too to say that you couldn't do this or that with your car and all the people who had older cars found themselves in a very difficult position. But lucky, the old car lobby was very strong. And some of the decisions which were either had been made or were about to be made in Parliament were swung in our favour. So it can happen. But inevitably, in the years to come, there will be some difficult choices to make. And inevitably, some of the old cars will be under threat. So all we can do is to hope that there will be some exemptions made. And overall, although more and more cars are being restored every year, more and more old cars are being restored. There are still not very many of them. If you consider, there are probably a few thousand worldwide. And I hope that for their sake, they will be able to continue. Do you think you could get as much fun out of driving an electric car as you've had out of driving some of these amazing petrol engine vehicles that you've told us about? Well, I think you can. For example, now that speed is such a no-no, all the the joy that I used to get in the old days of driving a car fast, you change your tastes to suit different circumstances. So that, for example, today, you mentioned the London Brighton Run and that sort of thing. You can get just as much fun out of getting a decent gear change (laughs) in the car as you can from very fast motoring. So I think you can still enjoy driving and whatever your car is propelled by and i'm looking at the moment now of getting an electric car it's a big mental change i think more than anything else but the car will be here forever and ever and nobody's come up with anything really comparable and i dare say in 50 years time maybe less the roads will be so congested that alternative forms of transport will be devised air travel doesn't help because it's all very well to have the machine that can fly but you've got to have the right kind of superstructure, you've got to have the right kind of legal system, you've got to have the right kind of competent pilots. And just picking up an airplane and flying it, it's not, life's not like that. It's a highly, highly regulated world out there. So there have got to be a lot of adjustments. I wish greatest of good luck to all those people who are involved with the decisions.
Thank you very much. Just one final question, just to end on to you, Jamie. I mean, I think the world record price for a classic car is a Ferrari 250 GTO, over 50 million US dollars. But if you swapped out its engine and put in an electric engine, do you think these kinds of cars would still be selling for such big money? Will electric cars be the classics of the future? Well, Bonhams have sold electric cars. (laughs) When you get back to the dawn of motoring, there were three ways of powering a car. You had the internal combustion engine, but you also had steam power and electric power. So electric cars, nothing necessarily new to the car industry. Having said that, it was all about the batteries, wasn't it? And the range that they could give you. And it's still a concern today, but they're getting on top of that. But I think in recent years, yeah, we've sold one of the first Teslas that was effectively on a Lotus chassis. And they have taken on collectible status. Now, as you say, if you removed the three litre engine from a 250 GTO and replaced it with some battery cells, is that GTO still worth many millions of dollars? The answer is yes. Is it worth the same as if it still had its three litre V12? The answer is no. So thank you very much, Jamie, and your Royal Highness. That's been a fantastic discussion. I'm sure our readers will enjoy listening to all of the um, exciting topics that we've covered and will really enjoy your, your anecdotes gathered over so many years of being involved with the classic car industry. If you enjoyed this episode of Intelligence Talks, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also make sure to share this episode on social media and check out the show notes for more information. Mm-hmm.